Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm your host, Danny B. Today, I am absolutely stoked to have Jack Heath, author extraordinaire, back on the podcast, author of books for children, author of books for adults, including Hunter, Hangman, Hideout, the Danger series, and now the Mystery series, which I love. And he's here to chat about his awesome new hilarious book, Stunt Kid. Welcome back, Jack. Hello. Thanks for having me back on the show. I think your intro is getting longer every time I speak to you. (laughs) When uh, when you said I was here to talk about a comedy book, I'm like, oh, oh God, I have to think of something funny to say. What's some funny way to say hello? Thank you for having me on the podcast. And I just couldn't think of anything in time. Well, maybe throughout the next half an hour, you'll think of it. We can just insert it in. We could do I that. I am open to suggestions. <laughs> now, today is a special day, Jack. This is the first time that we've done this and you've been on the podcast a few times now. We had a competition to have a super fan come onto the podcast to ask you a question. It's pretty exciting, right? Absolutely. What did the winner have to do in order to win? Well, we'll let we'll let Di. Di Walker is here. Di is a teacher from Victoria. She loves to listen to writers talk about writing and podcasts that give a behind-the-scenes look at the public in, publishing industry. I mean, I think that sounds like us, Jack. And <laughs> tell us, Di, how did you win this competition? What did you have to do? I had to share the post you put out about it and possibly write something deep and meaningful. I didn't do that bit. I just shared the post. (laughs) And then I won the competition. That sounds relatively painless. I I was picturing, you know, like a hot dog swallowing or, you know, something something outrageous. That will be the next one. I thought I'd start easy and then it will be like some kind of hot dog competition. Yeah. lull people into a false sense of hot doglessness. That's yeah, what we do well, here. I got into this one then. I'm not a fan <laughs> of hot dogs. So. <laughs> and what I do to pick out my competitions, if anyone's interested, I, I ball up everyone's names on a little bit of paper while we're eating dinner and I put them all over the dining table and my kids pick the winner. So it's very technical. <laughs> <laughs> very technical. <laughs> but how else would you do it, right? It's still pretty fair. The one time I tried to run a competition on Facebook, <laughs> I had like 12 entrants. So I was going to roll a 12-sided dice and then I accidentally rolled a 10-sided one instead and so and like picked the <laughs> winner. I, I filmed myself rolling the <laughs> dice and then like told the person that they'd won and then I was like, wait, that's the wrong number of sides on the dice. The number 11 and 12 could not have won. What do I do? What did so you do? I just... Uh, I, I said that there would be three winners and 11 and 12 won automatically by virtue of having been disqualified from the first one. So luckily it was the sort of prize I could give to three people. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's so funny. Look, competitions may not be our strong point, but we try. We try. Oh, you're doing great. Don't don't let me drag you down. <laughs> I don't know about my sort of system, but anyway, here we go. Here we are. Now, Di, you have a question for Jack. So hit us with your question. Okay. So, Jack, my question, I'm fascinated about writing process. So my question is for you about you write for children and adults, you write comedy, you write about um, cannibals. But my question is about then how do you change or do you change your mindset when you go from one age group to another or has your process changed by working with different publishers, especially Mm. ones like overseas where they translate your work into German when you can't speak German? (laughs) And if that have process changes for you. Yeah, okay. So the process changes via different publishers more than my process changes depending on which age group I'm writing for, if that makes sense. So I um, I, I try not to, to say this too often or in front of the wrong crowd because there's a risk of making adults feel patronised or making kids feel, well, bored or patronised. But the ingredients to telling a great story are pretty much the same, I think, regardless of the age group or even the genre that you're writing in. You still want characters that the readers are going to be interested in and root for, and you still want the story to kind of move on at a nice pace that means no one's going to get bored, and you still want there to be surprises and suspense and great similes and all that stuff. So the writing process is is identical. Um other than uh, a couple of things, one is that when I'm uh, when I'm writing for kids, I'm usually trying not to be too much of a bad influence. Uh, <laughs> so I, I don't have the main character do anything too awful, and I don't have anything too awful happen to them. Um, whereas when I'm writing for adults, I like to flip that on its head and just see how far I can push the character and still keep the reader on their side. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Hence, the cannibal detective and um when i'm writing for different publishers though i mean you mentioned translated editions that is the best kind of publisher to work with because i don't have to do anything <laughs> um, i've already written the book someone else just translates it into a although different publishers work different ways my french publisher for example um, they get back to me with an awful lot of questions things uh to clarify about how the story worked or things that happened or Sometimes they want to change the names of characters because the, the names sort of just sound wrong in that language or, or whatever. Whereas other characters, um, I sign the contract, uh, sorry, other characters, other publishers. Um, I think my German publisher might be one of these actually. I just signed the contract and then a couple of years later heard that the book was out in German. Like, <laughs> That's awesome. I didn't ask for any clarification on anything. So yeah, the process is always a little bit different. And even in the same um, country, there was a long time when my when Alan Unwin, who publishes my adult books and a few of my children's books too, they um, they would always do things in hard copy. Um, they'd shuttle things back and forth that way, and I'd be making a lot of marks on on manuscripts with pencils. And they may still be doing it that way. Actually, I, I don't remember what I did for Hideout. Whereas Scholastic, my other children's publisher, everything was always done digitally. There weren't quite as many drafts, but it would be a a Microsoft Word document bouncing back and forth with track changes switched on and comments posted in the margins and things like that. So, yeah, they all have their different quirks. But when it comes to me writing the first draft, just me and the computer before anyone else is kind of uh, led in to invade the, the story with their own viewpoint, um, the process is identical no matter who I'm writing for, which I guess means that ultimately I'm still just kind of writing for myself. I'm writing the kind of book that I think would be cool. So in that sense, it doesn't matter who is ultimately going to be purchasing it. I yeah. love that, Jack, because I've not heard about before, and I'm sure it happens, but I haven't heard about writing process change because of the publisher, and I find that really interesting. Yeah, well, at the moment I'm writing a book for Audible, which is different again mm-hmm. because there there's not going to be a print edition of that book or at least there's not going to be a print edition of that version of the book. Yeah. Um, so there's a whole heap of notes on the manuscript that are like this, um, we need to add she says here because otherwise you can see on the page that who is talking but that it's not going to be apparent out loud or mm-hmm. there was a thing where I said... Um, she snorted awake, and I just wrote like as a piece of dialogue to try to make that snorting awake sound. And then they'd highlighted that and said, do you want the voice actor to 
actually say this or can we just say she snorted awake? And my response was, I definitely think they should make a snorting awake sound, but I don't mind if it's not finure. <laughs> like, I'm happy for the actor to, uh, to come up with something that's I'm looking forward to what they come up with now, Jack. Like Jack says, he's a romance writer. Just people get distracted by the cannibalism. <laughs> but if <laughs> but I don't sleep, then it's your fault. Okay. I, well, I don't sleep either, so we'll just chat on Twitter. It'll be fine. Just as long as it's Danny's fault rather than mine, I'm okay with that. <laughs> Thanks so much for your answer, Jack. That was really great. was. Well, that- I think great answers come from great questions, Di, so thank you very much. Any parting words you'd like to give Jack and myself before you head off and have a cuppa? Well, I'd just like to thank you, Danny, for the podcast because I really love it. I learn so much from listening to different writers talk about it, um, what they do, and they talk because you ask them great questions and you really draw out interesting um points from them different things each time even though you you might interview them so thank you Danny for your podcast and uh Jack I will I'll let you know how I go with the cannibal but I just have to tell you the way you write and how you can write for so many different audiences just so impressive you're a great Australian writer absolutely thank you so much Di I really appreciate that and I think it's worth mentioning that you're at 35 books in 15 years, Jack. I mean, that is incredible. Cue applause. <laughs> Thank you so much, Di. It's been an absolute pleasure to meet you Zoom face-to-face. <laughs> and we'll put this uh, episode out really soon. So you'll see it. You know you'll see it. Yeah. I know. I'll be here listening. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks. Lovely to meet you. Bye. Bye. Now, Jack, my now my you know goal is I have to get new things out of you. No pressure here. Mm, yeah, okay. <laughs> now, Stunt Kid loved it. My kids loved it. I'm reading it now for the second time to my six year old, eight year old. Spent all of the time laughing on the top bunk, going, <laughs> and he kept reading bits out to me. So, really, I'm probably going to end up reading this book about six times. So, <laughs> Jack hit me with an elevator pitch. Stunt Kid seriously stacks it. Okay, so um, Levi Bluche is a pretty ordinary kid, but his dad is an enthusiastic but talentless filmmaker who (laughs) wants to make the world's greatest action TV series and he wants Levi to star in it. But unfortunately, Levi's dad has no idea how to film stunts safely. So Levi just wants to be a librarian, but instead his dad is constantly putting him in exploding boats or, um, you know, tucking him over the fence in the zoo and, you know, slapping the butt of a rhinoceros to get it to chase him and stuff like that. So Levi enlists the help of, oh, actually, that might be a a bit too much of a a spoiler, but there's a lot of other wacky people in his town of Mount Cabbage, including his best friend, who is an aspiring supervillain. And together, he and his friend Maya um, come up with a plan to try to get Levi to try to keep him alive long enough to finish his dad's stupid TV show. <laughs> so it's a kind of coming-of-age, father-son, wacky comedy, but particularly um, of appeal, I think, to film buffs. I was someone who always, um, like, growing up, I had a lot of favourite movies, but also I used to like to watch them with the commentary switch on. I like to hear the the writers and directors and actors talk about all the funny things that happened on the set and uh, talk about what they were trying to do in this scene and that scene. And making a, a movie or a TV show is nothing like writing a book. Like when you're when you're writing a book, the worst possible thing that can happen is, you know, you, well, it's happened to me actually. The worst thing that can happen is you write a book that doesn't work and then no one publishes it and then it just sits in your drawer forever. Whereas when you're making a movie, the worst thing that can happen is, well, people can die (laughs) for starters. But even if that doesn't happen, there's, you know, commonly injuries, there's, you know, friendships lost, there's, um, you know, sometimes things explode that shouldn't explode, sometimes things don't explode that should. And I was always fascinated by all these ridiculous stories. So I always kind of wanted to write an action thriller about a kid who's, parents worked in the film industry but in the 80s back when everything had to be done for real because there was no CGI but I could never get that book working um so in the end it kind of was filed away in the bottom drawer and then when Scholastic asked me to write a comedy 
um, I kind of picked that idea out again. And I thought, okay, what if it's not the 80s? What if it's present day, but the dad kind of has this love of the movies of the 80s? And yeah, okay, I can feel that I've got something here. So that stunt can seriously stacks it. Sorry, that was significantly longer. No, that was great. It was a really, really tall building we were going up, so it's fine. (laughs) Now, I love the idea of the father being the one that's, you know, kind of irresponsible and just focused on, you know, what he wants to do. So you've kind of flipped the father-son relationship of the stereotype. Yeah, I think a lot of comedy depends on reversal of things. Like Mm -hmm. one of my favourite jokes that I've ever heard is, do you know that if it sound if you bang two halves of a horse together, it sounds like someone riding a coconut? <laughs> and so, so much, um, so much comedy depends on flipping the ordinary thing. So you're right. Like often, it is the kids saying, "Like, mom, dad, come on, I can do this. Trust me. I, I want to do this for myself." And the kid and the parents are saying, "Oh, I don't know about that. Be careful. That's dangerous." And that's something we can all identify with. Um, and because of that, it's not very funny. You flip it around and the parents are, are the ridiculous ones and the kid is, is the one saying, oh, I don't know about this. This seems a bit dangerous. <laughs> and suddenly there's instantly an element of humour there just because it's recognisable but also silly and the opposite of what you expect. Yeah, absolutely. And when I read it to my youngest daughter, um, the, the opening is so funny. We were both giggling. We both had to stop because we were laughing, you know, particularly about, you know, I don't think it's a spoiler because it's in the first couple of pages, you know, when a crocodile comes out, the dad's like, oh, great, a crocodile. And the son's like, well, hang on a minute, this is getting dangerous. But the dad's really excited about it and says, oh, that means the water's not that toxic because there's a there's a crocodile in there. So we had a lot of, and I love books that, you know, help you connect with your own child when you're reading because you sit there and you have a real giggle to each other. So thank you for that. That was great. Oh, no worries. I'm glad I could help. I think that the um, uh, maybe I've said this on the the podcast before because it's starting to sound familiar. But how good like the amount of fun the reader is having seems to be inversely proportional to the amount of fun the character is having. Mm-hmm. So like if Levi thought the situation was funny, then it would not be funny to you. It's the fact that he's so sort of horrified and appalled, and the fact that his dad is so oblivious. Yeah. I think. The danger that you, the reader, can see and that Levi can see. I, I think that's what makes it work. You know what? I don't think you've said that before because I'm just thinking about that now, thinking that's really interesting. And I think you're right. right. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's not just comedy, right? Like yeah. any any book you're reading, um, you you don't want the main character to have a cruisy time of it. You mm. uh, you want them to suffer. <laughs> I do. Otherwise, you know, what are you there for? Yeah. And otherwise, what's the point of the ending? Like if, it's, right. if they succeed in the end, but they haven't had to actually overcome any obstacles to get there. You'd then... be like, oh, who cares? Yeah, yeah. Why was that story <laughs> worth telling? <laughs> now, I want to talk about comedy and I want you to take us through and we, we flip, we talked a little bit about flipping, you know, stereotypes on their heads and, and the unexpected. And I really like what you just touched on then about the reader having lots of fun when the character's not having lots of fun. So I like, I really like that. I'm going to think about that a lot, but could you talk us about other techniques that you use for creating humor on the page? Cause this was like, I find your books always amusing, but for me, Stunt Kid was just, I think it was one of your funniest books, Jack. Oh, I'm very pleased to hear you say that because it was, much harder than I expected it to be. <laughs> it was the publisher's idea that I could write a comedy. And um, and that may sound, to people outside the publishing industry, that may sound ridiculous. Like, why would they take a writer who wasn't known for comedy and ask them to write one when that's not the genre that they're successful in? But really, when a publisher wants you to write a book, um, so much of it is just about your working relationship with them. So they they knew they wanted a comedy for this age group. So, but instead of looking for someone who could write comedy, they went, okay, who do we know who can write fairly quickly and, you know, delivers manuscripts on time and is typically open to feedback and, you know, all these various other things that an author can do to to make themselves useful to a publisher. So they, um, I don't know how many people turned them down for the record. I may not have been their first choice. For this particular program. Oh, I don't believe that. But just, just pausing there for a minute, when you even look at your adult books, you know, Hunted and Hideout and Hangman, there is humour in there though, Jack. It might be dark and it might be sort of a cynical type of humour, but there's definitely humour in those books. Oh, I suppose so. I think um, most good stories have a bit of light and shade. You know, you uh, any book without contrast is going to get 
monotonous. So even my my action books, they're not action, action, action all the time. I try to give the impression that they are in interviews, but if they were, they would get pretty boring pretty quickly. You need sort of bits, you need moments where the not only moments of humor, but also moments of kind of um, deep character connection, but where the characters, nothing is exploding, but they're kind of exploring parts of themselves and parts of each other and things like that. So there's always got to be a lot of contrast around and humor is a great way to sort of keep and hold uh, the audience's attention. But when it becomes the main focus of the book, that for me was a much, much harder challenge. And there were a lot of different ways, like the, when I, I sent a pitch of the story to the publisher, they were like, eh, it doesn't seem wacky enough. Can you, can you include some talking animals? And I was like, okay, sure. And so I put in a bunch of talking animals and then the publisher read that and went, yeah. So I wrote the book with the talking animals in. And then the publisher was like, actually, this doesn't feel right. We know we're the ones who asked for it, but it's just too weird and it makes it very hard to see what level of reality the book is is operating on can you take all the talking animals out except the horse the horse <laughs> the horse stayed yeah. so we've got one talking horse and everything else is um just I wonder why the horse do you think you know that was sort of a mr ed thing i don't know i think it was mostly just the fact that the horse had more of a reason to be there it started out as just a throwaway line that the the police doesn't have a sniffer dog he has a sniffer horse because dog's <laughs> nostrils are too small that, that was the joke and then um uh and because i've made the horse talk suddenly that horse was part of a whole bunch of conversations it would have been very difficult to edit it out i guess <laughs> but the horse got a lot more funny lines than um than any of the other talking animals so it was much easier to get rid of the others also i think the the talking cat which no longer talks in the the final version you could it was very easy through the cat's body language to just turn that dialogue into body language so the cat doesn't say anything but levi can always tell that it's mm-hmm. thinking about murdering him yeah well and we know what cats are like right so yeah exactly <laughs> just to give you some idea of how much the book changed i mean uh Levi at one point um hunts down retired stuntman Joe Dangerfield to help him solve his problem that's a huge part of the book and it was not in my pitch the the publisher was like can you make it wackier can you put in like a retired stuntman (laughs) named Rodney Dangerfield and that sounded familiar and I googled it and Rodney Dangerfield is a famous comedian so So I changed it to Joe just so I wasn't crossing over there but the thing that makes it even more difficult writing comedy is it's funny uh well firstly it's hard to laugh at your own joke right and if you're not uh, I mean if you're talking to someone else and you're telling jokes and they're laughing you can tell it's funny but when you're writing you don't have an audience so your only way of kind of guessing is this funny is well, would I laugh at this if someone else was reading it to me? And then that's just the first draft. The second time you go back and start editing, then none of the jokes are funny because you've heard them all before. So you're like, (laughs) oh God, I've written a comedy, but it isn't funny. So you just try to pack in even more jokes. And then in the next round of editing, even those don't seem funny. So the funnier the book gets, kind of the more the reader, the more the author gives up all hope of ever having a comedy writing career. Um, oh man, I don't know. Wow, that's stressful, it Jack. It is, yeah, terrifying. I got to a point. I think this is was the third last draft or the second last draft or something. When I emailed my agent and said, uh, "Look, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm glad that I had the opportunity to do it. I've learned something about myself. I'm not good at this. No more comedy books, please. And sorry. And then um, we got to kind of not the final proofread, but the sort of second to last run through the text. And there was some, oh, actually, you know what happened? It went to the illustrator. Mm-hmm. And so that meant that not only were there suddenly illustrations, which I thought were hilarious, but also it gave me a period of like two months when I hadn't seen or thought about the book. And then suddenly I could discover it as a reader as opposed to as an author. All these jokes that I'd forgotten that I put in and I was reading the draft and laughing the whole way through. And I was like, hey, this did work. Hey, this, that's what I said. I'm, uh, I'm good at this. And uh, 
to answer your actual question about the kinds of things that that um, that I put in to to make it funnier, I found that when I was starting out, I was mostly trying to do like wordplay and puns and stuff. But not everybody likes puns. Uh, I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, I know they're the best kind of humor, in my opinion. Oh, <laughs> nice one. Well done. But, they're also like the easiest thing to do. Mm -hmm. So I was cramming it full of the easy kind of jokes. And then I discovered that actually what worked much better was exaggeration. So taking normal situations and then making them ridiculous as, as we've kind of talked about already. And, but then after that, it still wasn't quite working until I realized that I had to stop writing it as a comedy and start writing it as though it was a drama because the jokes, the funny things that happen aren't funny until you care about the characters and really empathize with them and feel for them. So as soon as I started using all my old techniques that I used to write my danger books and all my other series, that's when the jokes started really popping because there was a kind of solid foundation for them to, to rest on. I'm fascinated by this because, you know, I think a lot of people would pick up a wacky book and think, oh, you know, wacky book, and they wouldn't think about what you've just spoken about, about the challenges that you faced, about, you know, having to mix up techniques and, and change it. And you're right, you know, you, you've read your jokes. The second time it's not funny. The third time it's not funny. So I just find that so fascinating that, you know, the thought processes and, and the writing process that went into Stunt Kid, and I think, you know, obviously that's what makes it such a great book, but you know, I find it almost refreshing that after 35 books, Jack, in 15 years, you still, you know, doubted yourself and you still had this quite tumultuous experience with it saying, that's it, no more funny books, I'm not good at this, but then you <laughs> came through that. So that's amazing. Yeah, well, for for the record, I have a variation of that particular panic attack during every book, <laughs> about two-thirds of the way through. I always get to a point where I'm like, okay, the book that I'm writing isn't shaping up the way I expected it to. Um, I'm looking at all my published books on the shelf. I know they were better than this. Why is why are those books so good and this one so bad? Maybe I used to have talent and I don't have it anymore. <laughs> That's my thought process every single time. And my literally Where did my, my talent go? Where did yeah, it go? Exactly. And and I start blaming it on things as well. I go, okay, I was such a good writer before um before i was on instagram and spent so much time on instagram that's what's robbed me it's killed my brain and then i go oh no wait i was a good writer before i had children like back when i was getting a full night's sleep every night i could create works of genius but now i'm i'm a shadow of the, the writer i used to be and my only defense against all this negative self-talk is literally just telling myself okay Jack this happens every single time you always panic at about this point and it's because the book hasn't gone through there's going to be several more rounds of editing before it is published eventually it will be as good as all those other books probably better because you know things now that you didn't know when you wrote those it'll turn out fine as long as you keep going you don't have to fix everything today you don't have to fix everything in this hour you just have to make sure that that you put in the hours on the book. If you put in the hours, eventually it'll come good. It's just like a leap of faith. Mm, I think every writer, an aspiring writer, needs to just have your voice on their ringtone, just that little snippet you said. And it can be like this inspirational quote. So every time your phone rings, Jack's like, just keep going. It'll be fine. This always <laughs> happens. Keep going. It'll be great. I like to think of it mathematically because I think a lot of writers get a bit frozen when um, particularly, and this, this gets worse in like the last draft or the second last draft, you see a sentence and you think it's a bit clunky and then you change it and then you go, wait, what if I've made it worse? I can't tell. Is that better or worse? I'm not sure. And, but, but what if it's worse, you know? And I think the that's not an illusion you might have made it worse I, I figure that let's say that there's a 60 percent chance that you've made the sentence better and a 40 percent chance you've made it worse then if you do that with every single sentence then yeah 40 percent of them will be worse but the book overall is certain to be better so that's um that's the way i try to think about it now anytime i see something and i think should i change that I do, knowing that it's better than a coin toss, like the, the chances that I'm improving my book rather than detracting from it 
are better than even odds. So as long as I make that decision every time, as long as I make a change every time it occurs to me to make a change, then the overall book will keep getting better, even if on an individual sentence or word basis, I'm likely to make some missteps, certain to make some missteps. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And you know what? I was I was writing these questions going, I wonder if Jack and I have anything new to talk about. We've killed it. Seriously. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I've just been rambling. No, it's, it's fantastic. You've come up with all these gems. And I'm going to change my ringtone after this interview to Jack's voice. <laughs> it's Jack's inspirational quotes. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you were telling me and you said, you know, off air that you're quite inconsistent with your answers. So I remember you telling me that, and this is just because, you know, process changes, etc. But you were telling me that you just write and then you fill in the blanks with your research because you don't want to be sort of bogged down by facts, you know, because who wants facts, especially when you're writing you know, books like Stunt Kid, etc. So yeah. I wanted to know, you know, in terms of stunts and in terms of this kind of book, what was your research? I imagine, you know, were you watching reruns of Jackass or Evil Knievel? <laughs> like, what were you doing to get you know to know about stunts and stunt people and, and I know you're a film buff so I don't know if you had to do much research there yeah so there was a mixture of like before I wrote the book I don't think I did any research except that in a sense I had inadvertently done a ton of it because the reason I was writing the book was because I'd watched all these directors commentaries yep. and, and things like that but the first moment I remember doing any research was there's a scene where Levi is talking to retired stuntman Joe Dangerfield who's trying to teach him a bunch of stunt stuff and I was like okay what sorts of things could could he be teaching Levi to do so I started I found myself kind of researching famous stunts and famous stunt people over time to see what they did so there's some real techniques in the book as it happens like Joe Dangerfield teaches uh teaches Levi the safest way to fall down a flight of stairs. <laughs> um, don't try this at home, kids. Yeah, well, yeah, actually, yeah, don't try any of the things in the book at home. But if you do, make sure you do what Joe Dangerfield says, <laughs> right? Don't... Um, it's a slippery slope, Jack, a slippery slope. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just mean there's, like, you know, safety warnings in there. Like, mm. so, for example, and I didn't know this before I did the research, if you're walking on hot coals... You want your feet to be wet, but you want the coals to be dry. Oh, and you need to make sure that you're wearing like shorts or three-quarter pants because you're less likely for your feet to get on fire than for your pants to get on fire. And then when you're off the coals, you're still burning if your pants are burning, right? It's that kind of Just thing. Just learnt so much. Yeah. And so I like to think that I don't know how much better the, the research made the book sometimes the research kind of gets in the way of the story yeah. I have found yeah. that's one of the other reasons I try not to overdo it but I do like to think that there will be probably not kids but parents reading the book who recognize various bits and pieces like Joe Dangerfield refers to jumping off a dam um holding a sword and having like an on a bungee jump and basically having blacked out when he was halfway down, but having sticky taped the sword to his hand so as it still looked like he was conscious. Um, so some readers may recognise that as a real thing that happened during the filming of uh, GoldenEye, the James Bond movie. There was a stuntman named Wayne Michaels who, who jumped off a dam. It was one of the biggest bungee jumps of all time. It holds some kind of record, I think, and... And he, he blacked out, but he duct taped a gun to his hand. So so the stunt still worked. They could still use it. You can watch it. It's um, wow. pretty amazing once you know that it was all real. Wow. <laughs> I think I need to watch that now. Now, here's a question from an eight-year-old fan. Um, he wants to know, have you ever done any of these stunts in your book? And would you? If you haven't, would you do any of them? I... Look, starting out writing the book, I considered myself mostly a Levi. <laughs> I'm pretty bookish, quiet, indoorsy, don't like, uh, well, don't like danger and, um, you know, frankly, don't even, <laughs> and don't want the attention also, that kind of thing. But when, once I had written the book, I realised that I am not really very much like Levi. My own son is like Levi. I am much more like Levi's dad. <laughs> I'm the one who's always kind of pushing Levi to take risks that he, he probably shouldn't take and 
you know, letting my own enthusiasm for a project kind of inconvenience or probably not in danger, but it, at least annoy other people. Um, so having said all of that, I wouldn't do any of the stunts that Levi does, but I did have a bunch of friends who were filmmakers when I was in my teenage years. Uh, mostly they were my brother's friends rather than mine because my brother was an actor. So I did end up filming a stunt in a movie, in a, just a, a short film, but basically I was supposed to drive down a street and there was going to be a guy riding a bike throwing newspapers into front yards. And he was supposed to accidentally throw a newspaper into the open window of the car and it was supposed to hit me in the head and I was supposed to swerve all over the road. So they had closed both ends of the street and by they had closed it, this was in no way a professional outfit. <laughs> um, this was sort of, so there was like an eight-year-old kid with a soccer ball at one end of the street who was going to yell if a car was coming. And there was like his big sister at the other end with a bike. So think less professional Hollywood movie set and think more game of cricket on the street type rules, you know. That mm -hmm. But having said that, I think I did it pretty well. The difficult part was actually for the actor who had to throw a newspaper through the window of a moving car. No matter how slowly I went, it didn't seem to help. But once it hit me in the head, I was able to swerve all over the road and then out of frame and then hit the brakes before I hit anything important or expensive. And then that was the scene. That was, you know, my, my role in the movie. So it was kind of fun, but also kind of boring. And I think we were talking before about writing comedy and making sure that the reader has a good time but and but how you know nerve-wracking it is for the writer I actually think um obviously whenever you're making like uh I don't know the, the, hmm, I'm not sure exactly how best to put this so bear with me for a second but it's like um whenever you are watching a movie or reading a book or whatever, you, you experience certain emotions um, when you are looking at this or enjoying this work of art. And you kind of expect those to be the same emotions that the artist felt because you're kind of feeling a connection with them. But, and sometimes that is what happens, but often it's not because if you're writing a comedy, you're making something lighthearted and fluffy. And in reality, whoever is actually making the comedy and this isn't just writers this is stand-up comedians this is comedian comedic actors com comedy musicians and stuff um they are kind of sweating blood to try to make this thing happen and it's not fun you know mm -hmm. you think of those sort of comedic ukulele players they will have had to have played that song so many times in order to get to make it funny enough for you they have to take all the joy out of it for themselves if that makes mm, sense absolutely it's not that it wasn't fun to write this book this isn't my point but the other thing is like watching a movie with a stunt in it particularly if it's something like something funny like guy gets hit in the head with a newspaper and then swerves off the road you would assume that would be fun to film because it's fun to watch but that's not the case at all it took all afternoon and after mm -hmm. you know we'd screwed up 10 takes and still didn't have it we were all kind of bored kind of sunburned getting thirsty wondering if we should cut this scene from the movie there's this real disconnect between what the audience feels and what the creators feel that i think um uh that i think not many people are aware of mm -hmm. but i also think that's a good thing because if you're making a work of art and it's working well you shouldn't be thinking consciously about what the artist was doing you know you should just be the characters should feel so real that you're not wondering what the author was thinking mm. you should be just consuming it and enjoying exactly. it yeah no that was a really interesting story and when you were telling me about being in the car and the swerving in the newspaper I was actually quite stressed. So oh, I'm sorry. I can see how that would be stressful for you, Jack. I was like, oh, that sounds dangerous. Oh. Yeah, it wasn't very stressful at the time because I was young and stupid. Mm. Looking back, mm. it was stupid and I should have been more stressed than I was. <laughs> That's the beauty of youth, isn't it? Just the oblivion of I miss that. I miss that. Yeah, the, the sense of entirely unjustified sense of invincibility that you Absolutely. have as a young person. And then as you, you get a little bit older, you're like, oh, wow, totally feel the opposite to that now. I think I'll worry about everything. 
Mm. Why not? And particularly when you have children and yes. you're like, okay, so when I was your age, what were they doing? Okay, <laughs> uh, operating a motor vehicle, deliberately swerving off the road, with obscured sight lines to, to, for my friend's film. What? No, you're not doing that. Exactly. You're grounded for even exactly. considering it. You know? And you know what? Like growing up in the 80s and the 90s, like it was a bit of a free time, right? You know, you just mm. come home when the streetlights are on, you did, or maybe you didn't wear a helmet, that kind of business. But I think if you grew up in the 80s and 90s like, you know, we did, I think then you become this helicopter parent because you know about all the things that went wrong to you and your friends. And so yeah. you put like this tight leash on your children. I don't know how this happened because I used to go roller skating all the time out in the street. You know, sometimes I'd wear a helmet. Now what do you do when you take your kids roller skating? Elbow pads, knee pads, helmet. And it's like <laughs> what has happened in the last 20 years? I, I have to confess my parents were very much the elbow pads, knee pads, okay. helmet type right, the, cool. the whole way through my life. So mm-hmm. that wasn't, um, <laughs> uh, that's not an example that resonates with me. But I also think um, another crucial difference is these days, if I were filming some stupid stunt for some stupid movie my friends would make, it would be on TikTok or Instagram that day, right? And my parents would immediately know about it and go, Mm. what the hell were you thinking? Whereas in this case, I don't know if my parents ever saw the movie, but Mm. if they did, it would have been like months later, definitely not not soon enough for me to kind of get in trouble. That's true. And you know what? They might have even seen it while you were doing it. You know, because oh, social yeah, media is so, streams. yeah, live streams or just, you know, flicking something on Instagram in that moment. So is that time, isn't that weird? Yeah. So you could do all sorts of things in the 80s and 90s without anyone knowing for a long time. <laughs> That's right. Now it's all over TikTok, kids, sorry. Mm. <laughs> We've ruined your childhood. We've ruined your youth. <laughs> <laughs> and it's only going to get worse. I mean, by the time my kids are actually that age, each of them will have a chip in their brains that will alert me whenever they have a bad thought. Mm, I don't mind that, actually. I might chip my kids. Sounds like a good idea. <laughs> chip them while they're young. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Now, uh, Jack, have we heard the last of Blake and Thistle? Ah, oh, I honestly don't know. I hope not is mm-hmm. uh, the answer to that question. If we do, will you just write me a little novella when they get married? <laughs> <laughs> Even just a short story, just a page. Uh, let me answer your question with another question do you really think an fbi agent would willingly marry a cannibal a good fbi agent for the record look in reality no but this is a fictional book where you suspend you you suspend disbelief so Mm. possibly you uh, if, if i can play the devil's advocate well to, I mean, the devil's advocate against myself, so I'm on your <laughs> side now. I guess that makes you the devil, sorry. Um, probably an FBI agent marrying a cannibal willingly probably isn't much more unlikely than the FBI knowingly hiring a cannibal in the first place. So True. I've True. already, it's a bit like the talking animals thing. Hmm. Like I've, I've already established the level of reality that the book and the series is operating on. Hmm. So no, yeah, right. maybe... Maybe there's hope for for Blake and Thistle. Um, But I do know, so I have another adult crime novel that doesn't have them in it coming out this year. Um, I'm hoping that that doesn't mean the end of the Timothy Blake series because I have another another one that is at the stage where, you know, we have a title, we have a, a plot. I haven't written any of the book, but we have a title, we have a plot, the publisher likes it. Um, it's just a matter of, if they, until the ink is dry on the contract, and frankly, even after that, I'm always um, I'm always hesitant about saying, yeah, it's definitely going to happen because I don't mm-hmm. want to make my um, my readers angry at me when they say, you said there would be a fourth Hangman book. <laughs> and I go, well, I had an idea for one, but, but I didn't write it. And they say, why? And I say, well, because... Because I was busy writing Stunt Kid. (laughs) (laughs) I was busy telling myself I was no longer talented. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Well, that's great. I'm really looking forward to another crime book. That's really interesting. So maybe a standalone? 
Uh, yeah, well, as usual, if, yeah. if it does really well, I'll, yeah. I'll find a way to bring back the surviving characters, I suppose. That's great. But if you want, do you want an elevator pitch for that yes, one? Yes, I just wasn't sure if I was allowed to have one yet. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so it's called Kill Your Brother. And the gist How does your is... brother feel about this, Jack? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I dedicated the book to him. I'm not sure if that'll make it creepier or if it will soothe his nerves at all. But, I don't know. Um, the the brother in the story, uh, the brother in question is not much like him, which probably helps. <laughs> um, I don't know. But I thought it was an arresting title and it kind of fits the premise of the book so well that I, I really wanted to use it, even if that meant um, alienating members of my own family. So the gist of it is that this, uh, this woman is searching for her missing brother. So this is an adult woman um, searching for an adult man. And he's he's vanished. She's been looking for him for a while. And eventually she finds him being held captive in, uh, in this woman's house, kind of out in the middle of nowhere, out on the outskirts of town. And so she finds her brother, but then she is captured too. And the woman who has captured them both, her name's Stephanie, says, okay, lady, I've got no beef with you. My problem is with him. Uh, so what am I going to do with you? And eventually Stephanie figures out, well, eventually, this happens basically on page one. None of this is spoiler. Um, basically, the woman says, okay, I will let you go if you kill your brother. Um, that way, you won't be able to tell anyone mm -hmm. that you've been here or what you found here because if you do tell anyone, you'll be arrested for murder. So um, I get my problem disposed of and I get you and you can go live a happy life. So this woman doesn't know about the sibling relationship between the two. Um, and the, the sister, her name is Elise, wants to know, like, are you crazy? What... Why, why are you even holding my brother captive? And the woman won't tell her. She says it's private. And her brother claims not to know. But over the course of the book, it becomes this sort of three-way cat and mouse game um, where the woman, Elise, is starting to suspect that her brother has actually done something terrible to deserve him being here. But Stephanie is slowly starting to work out the sibling relationship between the two. And all the while, Elise and Callum are both trying to work out how they're going to escape from this hollowed out septic tank in, uh, in, in this sort of rural farm area. And at the same time as all that, the reader is trying to uncover why Elise became a pariah in the town in the first place. Because no one's looking for her. She has no friends left. She has a pretty dark past too. But again, that was much more than an elevator. That's pitch. amazing so though. To reveal, yeah, well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. But that was great. I was just sitting here hoping you'd just tell me the whole story, actually. <laughs> I was really enjoying that. It's really clever because there's a lot of moral ambiguity. And now I'm wondering, because they're stuck in this septic tank, you're going to take them out, obviously, in terms of like flashbacks and things, or are you going to keep it like confined? Oh, it's very funny that you ask that question because, um, as I said, I, the publisher for it is Audible and they wanted a 50,000-word um, book. So that's more than a novella, but it's yeah. pretty short for a novel um, yeah. for, for readers who unaware so hangman for example is something like 80 yeah yeah hideout was a hundred thousand words so this is sort of half a hideout basically mm. and so i wrote the first draft and it had a whole bunch of flashbacks to um the main characters past and then in the course of editing the book for Audible, I cut all those flashbacks out um, in the hope of just kind of making it a more focused um, action pacey sort of narrative. And then I sold the print rights as well, but a print book that was only 50,000 words long, you basically wouldn't buy it in a shop. You definitely wouldn't pay 30 bucks for it. It would be way too short. So the print publisher wanted something more like 80,000 words. So I, I was like, okay, so what am I going to do with this? And my first solution, the first step, was to put all those flashbacks back in. Um, so now, so there, there will be two versions of the book, but it's not like a print version and an audio book. There will basically be two books. They'll have the same 
characters and the same setting and broadly speaking the same plot but the print one by necessity will have to have a whole heap of stuff that the audible that the audio version doesn't um so the result of that is going to be what i hope so at the moment the audio version is basically perfect yeah. um, well that sounded big-headed but what i mean is we've it's been done. through it a whole yeah. bunch of times yeah the, the publishers really like it i really like it we've ironed all the kinks out of the plot it's it functions plot-wise like a Swiss watch. There's um, a lot of moving parts, despite the sort of three-character premise that I gave you, but it's all really ticking along really nicely. Um, the print version is very, very clunky, but that's okay. The print version isn't going to come out for another six months. I have heaps of time to fix it um, with the help of the publisher, but I don't even know what the publisher thinks of it yet. They could well say, um, they could come back and say, yeah, we... Uh, we don't like this very much, but we've signed a contract with you. So how about you take out the brother? There can be some other reason that this woman is stuck in a septic tank. And I would have to do that because that's, that's just the reality of the business. So these two books could be very different or they could be quite similar and it's too soon to tell which is which. Wow. I can't wait to see what happens. And even if you, you listen to the Audible, if you do keep all the flashbacks in, it'll be interesting because you'll get a, a bit of a deeper, sort of richer understanding of the characters, won't you, in the in the print version? Yeah, that's my that's my hope. The um the tricky bit with that is that so uh, yes, everything that happened in the past will I guess inform what's happening in the present. But I'm very conscious of the fact that I don't want to to rip off my audio only readers. I don't want them yeah. to feel like they're missing out with anything. I don't want to write the kind of book that feels like it has missing information. So instead, what I've kind of done is the the scenes in the past, um, when I was trying to figure out how on earth am I going to do this? How did I find myself in a position where I have to write the same book twice? <laughs> at two different lengths in two different versions this is insane and I was trying to work out what I was going to put back in and I was putting in putting back in bits and pieces for the print version and going yeah but I cut these out for a reason they weren't yeah. working you know um so eventually my aha moment I did what I always do which is I went for a drive to a cafe and it's not just that cafes help me concentrate it's partly about the drive there the drive there is like a commute where I'm not listening to your wonderful podcast. I'm not listening to the radio. I'm not even listening to music. I'm just there with my hands on the wheel thinking about my problem. And usually by the time I get to the cafe, I've solved it. And in this case, I had. What's the drive? Is, What's the commute, Jack? Is it 20 minutes, 30, 40? <laughs> I'm just um, interested. It depends which cafe I'm going to. In this instance, it was eight minutes. Oh, wow. <laughs> solved a problem in eight minutes. That's amazing. I did, which makes you wonder why I couldn't just do it at home. But the your brain works in weird ways, though, like that. Yeah, it definitely does. You kind of need you to physically move your brain from one place to another. Yeah. There's something about that that gets the brain looking forward yep. rather than looking all around. And I've heard a bit about giving your brain space and and making it relax. So I think they say that in the shower too. You can solve problems in showers and driving. Yeah. So. Exactly. And also you can't take your smartphone in the shower. I you find cannot. That, that helps. All you can do is kind of, you know, listen to the rushing of the water. But I think I've been doing a lot of Zoom presentations uh, this year, um, as a lot of authors have uh, this year and last year. And I found that uh, it, it's, I think my Zoom presentations have done pretty well. I hope the students who have witnessed them have enjoyed them. But one of the weird things about it is often I don't remember that I'm supposed to be giving a school talk until about, you know, 15 minutes before it starts. So then I give the presentation and it doesn't matter how many reminders that I set myself. Like I see the reminder and I go, oh, yeah, I've got that school talk this afternoon. And then it's not until about 1.45 that I go, oh, I've got that school talk in 15 minutes. You know, Whereas when I had to physically travel, like go interstate to give that lecture, I think I would be more focused in the lecture. And it's because I've spent the journey 
looking forward to it. And I don't mean looking forward to it as in I'm going to enjoy it. I mean it in a much more literal way. I'm looking forward to the task ahead, if mm, that makes any sense. Yeah. So in this case, it was an eight-minute drive of looking forward to my time at the cafe. And I figured out that what I needed to do was write another novel, basically, or a novella set in the past. Mm -hmm. And I had to make sure that that was working all on its own, that it had a beginning, a middle and an end, and it had a, a journey for the character to go on, and it had a mystery for her to solve, and it had its own um, aspects of humour, but also fear and stuff like that. And then, only then, was I able to splice it into the novel that I'd written to, for Audible and go, yeah, okay, I can see this working now. It isn't working yet, but I can see how it's going to. I hope. I reserve the right to take all that back when my publisher gets back to me and says, this is a terrible book. <laughs> Not the um, Audible one. The Audible one's great. It's the print one that I'm nervous about. At the that is fascinating, honestly. That is so fascinating, really. That's... Now what you're supposed to say, Danny, is, Jack, this happens every time. You always yeah. panic mm. at this stage. All You'll be fine. Keep going. Talent hasn't gone. This will be better than all your other books because you've learnt lots of things along the way. Look, I've memorised it. <laughs> <laughs> now, Jack, what a, what a chat. I just love speaking to you because this is what happens. We just go down these rabbit holes, which are so wonderful. But like I've mentioned, 35 books. 15 years, I think I went to your celebration. It was that, that was 30 books. Well, it was meant to be 30, but it was, you snuck in a 31, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, that's right. My wife organised an enormous party to celebrate the publication of my 30th book. But by the time the party came around, I was up to 32 or something. Like yeah, that. <laughs> so we're like, yay, yes, 32. Yay, 32. <laughs> and that was a great celebration itself. But now, you know, you're 35 books, 15 years as a writer. It's it's just amazing. And like, you know, Di said before, honestly, you, you're an amazing writer and you just keep doing it in every genre. So it's not only such a pleasure to talk to you, I just want to sort of, you know, remind you, Jack, that it's it's bloody amazing. So I've asked you this question before, why do you write? But the question I want to ask you now, because I think you're unstoppable and I can't wait to see what the next 15 years holds for you, 70 books, um, Why do you, what keeps you writing? Yeah. Oh, man, that's, that's such a good question because... Um, I'm hesitant to admit this, but I do sometimes think about quitting. I suspect most writers, maybe all writers, think about quitting from time to time, but they are often reluctant to admit it to anybody else, and they certainly don't suspect it of, like, you would never look at someone like James Patterson or, you know, um, or Jane Harper or someone and go, wow, I bet she thinks about quitting from time to time. Like <laughs> you think they're so successful, they're so good at it. Of course they can't quit, but they probably do. And I certainly do. Um, but what keeps me coming back to it, I think, my wife and I like to play a game called best job, worst job, mm -hmm. which is where um, we think about someone else's job and we, and one of us says, oh man, that would be the best job. And you think of all the reasons that that would be an amazing job. And then the other one of us has to say, no, nah, that would be the worst job and come up with all the reasons that that would be a, a horrible, a horrible job. And then we did it for each other, which is, and what I discovered that, um, so my wife is a jeweler. We did best job, worst job for that. Uh, um, I said all the reasons I thought being a jeweler would be a horrible job. <laughs> and she said all the reasons that she loved it, right? And then she did worst job for me. And what was strange was all the things that made her say worst job for being a writer were for me the things that were like best job. Oh, so wow. she was saying things like, um, oh man, you had to spend all day at a desk. And my thing was like, I love my desk. <laughs> and she's like, you know, you have to spend, you, you never get to stop reading. Like you always have to be constantly reading books. Otherwise you'll fall behind what everyone else is doing. And I'm like, man, I love reading books. <laughs> so I think what keeps me going is that maybe it's some kind of chemical imbalance that I have, but all the reasons that other people would hate my job are the reasons that I love my job. Oh, so I like my desk and I like reading too, Jack. So I feel, I feel your pain. Yeah, there you go. I'm sure there were other things she said too, but I think the, the trick is not to lose sight of the reasons that you love your job. Mm. So, and I've gotten pretty good at whenever I'm having a frustrating day, 
I'm, uh, I've gotten pretty good at calling it a frustrating day rather than, you know, telling myself, oh man, maybe I should think about another profession because whatever other job I picked, there would probably be frustrating jobs doing frustrating days there too. And I wouldn't get to spend so much time reading. Or at your desk. Or at my desk. I (laughs) love my desk. just discovered how much you love. (laughs) But it is, it's your nice little space, isn't it? I love my little study too. And I'm in it a lot working from home and doing the podcasts. So you've got to love your space, right? You do. Well, Jack, as always, an absolute pleasure. I mean, your career as a writer, very impressive. And I've loved and followed your career for such a long time now. And I look forward to whatever the next 15 years brings. You're not quitting. I'll drive to Canberra myself and stick a pen in your hand. I know you run a laptop, which sounds better. <laughs> um, well, unless you're editing with Alan Lundman, then you are using pen and paper. Which yeah, I like. yeah, yeah, that, that's right. I uh, look forward to seeing what they uh, what they make me do to this um, <laughs> to this Frankenstein's monster of a. Um, oh, me too. I can't wait uh, to get my hands on. mashed into a novel. Maybe your pencil will help. Oh yeah, it's fantastic. Do you find? I'm sorry, I was about to wrap this up, but do you find you think better when you're editing on the laptop or with a pencil, or it doesn't matter for you anymore? Um, editing, I always like to to use the laptop. I like to sort of have it, you know, on the screen in front of me and, and look at it the way a reader will. Yeah. But for writing an outline or a um, or a pitch, um, pencil and pencil and paper. paper really keeps me focused. Hmm. And I think it's just the fact that when you when you're stuck with a pen and paper, you can't alt tab your way out of trouble and, and just, you know, quickly check your email. Like <laughs> that's true. Distraction. That blank page will stay blank. Um, <laughs> until you come up with something. And that's inspiring uh, slash terrifying. <laughs> Love it. Well, as usual, what a brilliant chat. Um, and what I think is really cool about your books, Jack, is that I can read a Jack Heath book. My kids can read a Jack Heath book, not the same ones all the time. They're not, they're not ready for hideout. <laughs> Um, but it's really cool that we can go, hey, you know, Jack is one of the authors that we all love as a family. So isn't that great? You can't say that about many authors. That's wonderful. Well, thank you very much for having me on the podcast and on your family's bookshelves. 